0: In 1517, the Ottomans captured Cairo and with it the Arabophone lands of the Mamluk Sultanate. Suddenly, scores of learned scholars who had been preparing and vying for positions of esteem in either the academy or the bureaucracy found themselves under new authority. How did these scholars navigate the new political and linguistic environments? The answer, as Helen Pfeiffer argues in her new book, lies in gentlemanly salons where elite men displayed their knowledge and status. These social laboratories played a key role in negotiating Syria and Egypt's integration into the empire. By focusing on the life and network of the star scholar Bedrettin El Ghazi, we learned that Arab elites could be more influential in their competition with powerful officials from Istanbul. The gentlemanly salons illustrate how Ottoman culture was forged collaboratively by Arab and Turkophone actors. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman history podcast. I'm Marian Patton. And today I'm here with Dr. Helen Pfeiffer, who is the university associate professor in early Ottoman history at the University of Cambridge. Her research focuses on empire, the circulation of culture and the management of human diversity in the early modern period. And today we'll be speaking about her new book, Empire of Salons, Conquest and Community in Early Modern Ottoman Lands. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. I'm a huge fan. I thought, uh, I thought we might just start with the salons in general, just to set the stage before we sort of dig deeper into the, the characters that populate your book. But I thought we would just start off with the salons themselves. For our listeners, could you just give them an introduction to what you mean by the salons, why you call them salons, since we, our listeners may know about the sort of more popular, more better known French salons of the early modern period. What kind of spaces were, were these salons?
1: So the whole book is really an effort to define Ottoman salons. And so each chapter takes a sort of different um, perspective on, on Ottoman salons in turn. But to give a sort of more compact definition of Ottoman salons and the definition I give in the book is that salons were elite gatherings held for the purposes of enlightened conversation and structured by the relations between host and guest. So those are the sort of three key characteristics that, that I isolate in the book. And maybe I can just take those in turn and explain them here. So first of all, they were elite. So, you know, it's, it's obvious probably that, that men and women of all different social classes held gatherings and met one another for the purpose of conversation um, and for entertainment in, in the 16th century. But what I try and argue is that the salon was this sort of mode for elite, and I would add Muslim men in the 16th century, and that it became a sort of key space in which to perform that elite male status. So all aspects of the salon were really linked to this kind of the wealth um, of these men to their good taste right so the settings in which they were held men often really invested a lot of time and energy in sort of designing reception halls or pavilions in which to to receive other men and to show off their sort of their wealth and and their sort of aesthetic sense so that's the first um, aspect the second is enlightened conversation and and conversation really was the key goal the main purpose of these kinds of gatherings. And this was not just sort of the conversation that people strove for, it was not just idle chit chat or sort of casual conversation. Conversation really was conceptualized by contemporaries as as an art form, as something that had to be cultivated, that had to be honed, and that was a sort of product in and of itself Um, To be enjoyed and to be uh, valued. So this kind of conversation, it represented the sort of confluence of adab and ilm, right? So of of literary and scholarly knowledge. So on the one hand, people uh, needed to master poetry in all of its, its different forms, and they need, they often memorized thousands and thousands of poems to sort of deploy at the right moment in conversation they memorized historical anecdotes uh, they memorized riddles and tried to solve riddles right so all of this kind of literary knowledge but also a kind of literary knowledge that was rolled out in an instant and that lived on on a sort of spontaneity wit and ability to, to extemporize so that's the sort of literary knowledge on the one hand but also scholarly knowledge was often uh, hugely important so people spent evenings discussing Quranic commentary, you know, at a sort of a candlelight, you know, gathering of, of men on a balmy summer evening, it's entirely possible that they would have discussed Quranic commentary, or, you know, other, other disciplines within the Islamic sciences. So really highly, highly demanding. And again, I think this is, this is sort of connected with this aspect of needing to be elite. You know, you obviously had to be very, very well educated in order to participate in these kinds of gatherings. So the last characteristic of salons, as I define them, is hospitality. So this relationship between host and guest. And I think when we hear the word salon, and in the French context, the salon really is associated with, of course, the domestic context. And, you know, as I've already suggested, the domestic sphere is really one of the main sort of cradles Uh, for this kind of uh, sociability. But at the same time, in the Ottoman context, we find that these gatherings are held in a variety of highly public, highly visible spaces. But despite this visibility and despite the fact that it was publicly accessible, these gatherings were still enormously exclusive. So again, as a result of the forms of conversation, as a result of the way that men were dressed, you know, it was unthinkable, I think, it was unthinkable that any old bloke would have sort of, you know, sauntered in and and, and settled down um, next to these elite men. So they still remained exclusive um, and they still remain sort of by invite only, right?
0: One advantage to you calling them salons and kind of giving an umbrella label to encapsulate all these sometimes varied settings, you know, either in the mosque or in someone's home or in like a formal, like a tereke or an actual building were quite unstructured in the sense that they weren't located in any specific setting all the time right so by calling them salon you can kind of group all these disparate elements together and one of your arguments is precisely that the space wasn't so important as it, as was the social relationships uh, within them right it was the was a space for negotiating sociability but the space itself maybe wasn't as critical to the to the institution of salon in general? Would that, is that would that be a, a fair way of interpreting sort of the emphasis less on space and more on the people in the salons?
1: Yeah. I mean I think I think in some ways you're right, right? And the sort of features that I that I isolate or, or use to characterize the salon are, are for the most part features you know that that characterize a particular type of sociability, right? But I would say actually that the space I think is is incredibly important even though these features are found in conversations held in many different spaces. One of the, the key, I think arguments of the book really is that that space actually does matter and and that that sort of spatial configurations are one of the things that, Animates these gatherings, and that gives them a certain sort of character. So, so one of one example that I can give is that you know these these gatherings often take place in a sort of circular formation, right? Whether they're held in a in a reception hall in a domestic space or in a pavilion or or in a, on a mosque floor, right? Um, they're often they often bring men together in a sort of circular formation, right? And a circular formation. On first impact, it sort of seems like it it generates parity among among uh, the various different participants. But in fact, once you start reading about the ways in which people discuss these these gatherings, in fact, we can see that the circle is in many ways a sort of physical mapping of status and hierarchy onto physical space, right? And in some ways, that is what makes you know, these gatherings so fraught, I don't know, maybe we'll have time to talk about the Salon of Hassan Bey, which is one of my favorite anecdotes of the book, where there's a sort of dispute over a seating arrangement. And in fact, I've came across, you know, dozens of accounts of disputes over who sat where and, you know, who sat above who and and what, what, you know, um, how dare, how dare he uh, uh, claim this kind of seat. And, and I think that really follows from the, the sort of physical conditions in which these gatherings take place. So, so I really would say that, that, that the sort of spatial constraints are very important.
0: Okay. Now that makes sense now that you think about the, the physical location of bodies in the space being sort of the important aspect to pay attention to. You mentioned this uh, this Hasan Bey debate. What was that about?
1: Um, so Hassan Bey was a uh, chief judge of um, Damascus, and he does what what actually many chief judges did when they uh, first arrived. He holds a, a reception, um, and he invites Badr al Din al Razi um, because they're they're very good friends. So Razi agrees; he he accepts the invitation despite the fact that formally. He is, by that time, has has gone into retreat. So he has actually retreated formally from the world of, of social gatherings and is sort of spending time in, in seclusion. So anyway, he agrees just this once. And so he shows up and, of course, Hassan Bey is delighted by the appearance of, of such an esteemed figure. And he sort of springs up and walks all the way to the fountain in the middle of the room and, you know, and sort of in a, in a very public way that is visible to all the other assembled men, greets Ghazi and then takes him over to be seated to his immediate right. And the position to the right of the host was, I think, universally accepted as the, as the seat of honor. A little bit uh, later, Alaa al-Din al-Shafi arrives, and Alaa ad din is a very respected um, scholar himself. Um, he's also a host of, of salons. And he and Razi go way back. And to believe Razi, this is Razi's account. I don't have Aladdin's account, but to to believe Razi, they broke when in a, in a class lesson of Razi's, Aladdin you know, suddenly started laughing hysterically and uncontrollably. And Razi, you know, understandably told him to stop laughing. And Aladdin was so sort of offended and and, and ashamed that he um, he got up and left and, and never returned to Razi's class again. And since then, the two men had sort of been feuding. So what does he do? So Aladdin arrives and, oh my gosh, he sees Razi, Razi right next to, to Hassan Bey. So rather than to go sit down next to Razi, which is apparently what was sort of universally expected at this gathering, um, he, he doesn't, he, he, he goes up, so, so the men are assembled on this sort of raised platform, and he just sits on the edge of the platform, he doesn't even take off his shoes, and he just sort of plants himself down. So um, Hassan Bey watches the scene and, you know, as the host, he sort of, he has to do something, right? Because this is a slight of, of one of his guests and not just any guest. And so he calls over to al adin oh, hey, al you know, why aren't you sitting next to Razi or literally under Razi, right? Why aren't you sitting next to Razi? Razi is older than you and more learned. So this was, this was a huge, huge blow in front of the assembled company. And to make matters worse, Allah doesn't manage to respond for whatever reason and it's actually Ghazi who chimes in and he says, oh dear Hassan Bey, you know, that's, that those are our sons for you. Some of them are obedient and others are disobedient, right? So in, in you know, what, what you could say quite condescending um, sort of response. So Allah ad is, is, you know, horrified at, at this turn of events and he does what apparently he does, he does best. Um, he gets up and walks out, and the sort of assembled company is aghast at this turn of events. That's the story. When we come across these kinds of stories, it's it's easy to say, "Oh gosh, look how petty!" You know, look how how petty the concerns of these scholars are. But but the argument that that I try and make in the chapter is that you know this isn't petty at all. That the stakes were in fact incredibly high, and that Contemporaries, I mean, as as I've suggested before, contemporaries saw seating arrangements as expressions of social hierarchy. And don't forget there are spectators to these these salons, right? There are servants there watching. There are often women watching from off the wings, right? There are the, the greatest and most powerful men of a particular community being seated in a position subordinate to someone else really had great consequence and and had sort of could have potentially
0: tangible results what went into what you called enlightened conversation in the salons like what were the nitty-gritty things that they discussed in a typical setting so what are
1: the the sort of foundations or the the pillars of of enlightened conversation one of the the basic claims of of the book is that that salon conversation was incredibly demanding and arduous so you know previous scholars on which I you know relied and whose work I respect immensely have have sort of portrayed the salon often as a space of entertainment and certainly it was a space of entertainment right before television and radio right people sat around talking and, and certainly there was there was dance sometimes there was music sometimes but but conversation was really at the heart of the salon that was ultimately the purpose of of the salon. And people took this conversation incredibly seriously. They trained for it for years. They read books that would help them to, you know, to gather uh, the anecdotes that they would then deploy within conversation. They uh, memorized Thousands of poems, you know, they really, I think, put us to shame. Um, you know, I, I don't even know my my husband's phone number anymore, right? And and people would, you know, would would memorize thousands and thousands of of, of poems in order to deploy at the at the just the right moment to sort of give a particular conversation an edge or to to challenge someone else or or to make someone else a a, conf, a, a compliment right so so contemporaries really conceptualize the salon uh, the salon conversation as a sort of art and and you know one might even say as a sort of uh, craft right to be to be honed and to be cultivated and you know i think that this fact has has incredible, you know, very important uh, consequences for the relationship between Turkish speakers and Arabic speakers in the wake of of the 15, 16, 17 conquest. And what what it basically means is that when Rumi's right, so so elite, let's say Turkish speakers from Anatolia, when they travel to you know the Arab world and partake in these kinds of gatherings uh, uh, with elite educated Arabs, it's a real challenge for them. And, and it sort of doesn't suffice. I mean, these men are incredibly educated, right? They all have wonderful, or many of them, let's say, the ones that, that Ghazi has contact with, have you know, great madrasa educations. They are steeped in learning. They are steeped in Arabic, right? They have gone through um, extensive linguistic training. Many of them write in Arabic. But, but that that is not enough in order to excel within the salon. And I think that is really um, you know, what, what sort of defines the experience of, of partaking in, in Arabic language salons for many of these, these um, roomies and makes it in some cases so fraught that you know, it doesn't suffice to actually know this sort of learned tradition, but you have to also speak incredibly eloquently and articulately, right? you have to speak beautifully, and you have to master this poetic and literary tradition, which, you know, Rumi's, I think, uh, leading up to the conquest and, you know, in, in, in many of the decades after the conquest, showed less interest in this sort of Arabic language poetic tradition than they did in, let's say, a Persian tradition or in a Turkish language tradition. And so when they entered those gatherings and maybe, you know, had difficulty articulating themselves in in sort of a fluent, beautiful Arabic, or um, didn't have a sort of, you know, wealth of of Arabic poems from which to draw, they sort of, you know, look, I think, less educated and less authoritative than they might wish to look. And then I think in many ways, they, they deserve to look. So, so the fact that, that Salon conversation was so, was, was so demanding really has, has real consequences for this relationship between, between Arabs and, and Rumis in the wake of the conquest. So you know, one of the larger ideas of the book is that the sort of context in which encounters take place really matters, right? That the encounter between these two groups, learned Arabic speakers and, and Turkish speakers looks very different within the salon context because of these, you know, because of the sort of uh, expectations associated with this particular space than they might have looked in in other contexts.
0: That was a perfect segue into sort of the next direction I want to take the conversation. So the, the political context, because your book isn't just about learned conversation and poetic debates in the salon. There's also a bigger story about empire, and and the Ottoman Empire in particular, post-1517 and Ottoman conquest of, of, of Arab lands. So I have two questions. The first one being sort of related to your previous point, just about how rigorous these settings were and how, you know, how, how it didn't really... It, it sounds like it wasn't enough to just have a good medras education. Like, what steps did the people who did very well in these salons, maybe one of the figures from your book, how did they get to that stage? What steps did they have to take? How did they... You know, who did they have to be in touch with or know, you know, a friend of a friend, things like that, to get to that status in the salons. So the best way to, to of course, learn the the rules
1: of the salon and how to excel in the salon was to partake in one. And, you know, one of the things that surprised me was that, you know, for the most part, these are gatherings of of sort of mature men in the prime of their lives, but... In sort of fragments here and there, and especially in Ottoman paintings of these kinds of gatherings, we often find that there are sort of junior members of the Salon who appear in, in paintings or who are occasionally mentioned in um, the written texts as well. And in fact, Ghazi's uh, father, uh, Radiy went out of his way to take his son with him to many of his meetings with his fellow uh, learned men, precisely so that uh, the young Badr din would sort of, you know, already begin to make some of these, these connections, right? Already begin to meet some of, of the important men of, of uh, their era, but also that he would begin to learn, I think, what the rules of the Salon uh, were and, and how to sort of excel Within them. Uh, that being said, you know there are there are plenty of, and I think uh, you know if, if I could do the project over again, I think I would I would spend more time looking at uh, the kinds of literature that, in part, I think aimed to help to prepare men um, for these kinds of con uh, these kinds of contexts. Right, so. Literary anthologies. Uh, I think even you know the the biographical dictionaries, the the tezkydes, right? That we that we know from the Ottoman Turkish context. In many ways, those were also, and those kinds of works were also, um, you know, incredibly useful in preparing people from for the salon. Why? Because it 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 furnished interesting, funny. Uh, surprising anecdotes about about leading figures and and poetry right Um, uh, which which are two of the sort of pillars of of salon conversation so you could read a book about sort of salon etiquette or 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 furnishing these kinds of anecdotes for the salon but of course you know the very best way uh, to prepare was was actually to to participate in, in in salons
0: So you mentioned about Tritina Ghazi, who's the locus of your book around whom many other figures are connected in various ways. And you mentioned how he was brought to these salons as a child. Let's let's spend the rest of the conversation talking about the sort of big picture political story that's part of your book about basically changes in the Ottoman Empire and, and structures and, you know, it's connected to shifts in the bureaucracy and the backgrounds of the scholars employed in the bureaucracy. Let's do that by sort of diving into to Tin al-Ghazi. Who was he? What led you to choose him as the sort of central focus? And and what were the the changes over his life that he witnessed during this, you know, pivotal moment on in history when they capture the Arab peninsula and sort of the heartland of, of Arab lands and Islam and suddenly have authority over a much greater space with a, you know, related but different culture, right? The Arab and the Rumi culture were, you know, connected before, but... Not as perhaps closely as they were now. So who was who was Badr al
1: Din Razi? Well, he was one of the foremost intellectuals of his era, and I think he hasn't really gotten, you know, the attention that 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 he is due. He was, you know, an incredibly revered figure in Damascus, which was his home, um, but he was also well known, you know, across Greater Syria, um, in Egypt and in the Ottoman capital as well, in Anatolia, where to this day, there are more than 20 uh, copies of his works um, stored in various different uh, libraries. So just just briefly, you know, who was he? Well, he was, first and foremost, he was a, a mufti. Um, that was his sort of day job, or one of his day jobs. He was a, a, a very respected mufti um, in the city of Damascus, so much so actually that one of his contemporaries uh, and, and former students said that he couldn't possibly issue any legal, any uh, um, judicial verdicts while Ghazi was alive because, you know, nobody could match him in, in erudition and in knowledge. Of course, Ghazi insisted that he would. And, and so he, he does, in fact. Um, begin to, to issue fatwas as well. So he's a mufti. He's a teacher. He, he trains really generations and generations of students. And of course, he is a revered scholar. He writes more than 100 works over the course of his lifetime. Many of them are in the, in the area of fiqh, so um, of jurisprudence. Um, but his, his other sort of area of expertise was tafsir, so Quranic exegesis. And the fact, you know, the fact that he was such an important intellectual was, was obviously, you know, one of the th- one of the reasons why I studied him, both because I think that that he, you know, should get his his due, but also because that meant that, of course, I had a you know a huge range of sources um, available um, on on Razi. So I both, you know, I use his own writings. And uh, in, some of them are, are sort of autobiographical. So he writes a travel account describing his trip from Damascus to Istanbul in 1534. Um, I use the biographies of, of many of his students who profiled uh, their teacher and I use the work of his actually better known son uh, today, uh, Najm al-Din al-Ghazi, um, who is, is well known for a sort of a huge a biographical dictionary, a Kawak al-Sa'ira, that he wrote um, uh, in the 17th century. So, you know, th- these these sources allow me, I think, to assemble a sort of Clearer picture of Razi the man and and the intellectual. Um, of course, the the downside of the sources is that most of them are hugely partial to Razi, right? You know, they're his students, they're his son. His son he sort of borders on the hagiographical often in his accounts of of his father, and you know, and in some ways, I think that's what the book offers, and that's what the book wants to be. It is, it really is an attempt to understand the the conquest from the arab perspective rather than from the perspective of the ottoman center so so i try and make you know make the most of of the sources available um, to give that that kind of perspective why did I put him at, at the center? Well, I should say, I mean, that, that I really came across him by coincidence or by the intellectual generosity of a colleague. So, so when I, you know, this is the book of, of my dissertation and, and my dissertation proposal stated that I wanted to look at the cultural, intellectual, social consequences of, of the Arab conquest of or the Ottoman conquest of Arab lands through the lens of the Salon. But I didn't have a sort of central figure when I, when I started out. So I began my research in, in Istanbul at the German Orient Institute. And Jens-Peter Laut, who was on the, the advisory board of the Orient Institute at the time, um, passed through um, my, my office. And I told him what I was interested in. He said, you know, oh, do you know um, al El-Razi? Um, you know, Ralf Elger has, has just written a book about him. And he wrote a travel account um, of his voyage from Damascus to Istanbul in the 1530s. And so I looked into this, this travel account and I found that you know not only was it a, a, a fantastic source for looking at the relationship between Arabic speakers and, and Turkish speakers in the sort of zero hour of the conquest, but it also just so happened that it was all about Salon. So it was essentially, you know, he does, Ghazi does describe, you know, the, the sort of the, the arduous of the journey, etc. But he really is mostly interested in his sort of face-to-face encounters with um, various people he met along the way, and especially of those people he met in the Ottoman capital. So I obviously felt hugely vindicated. And I thought, this is, you know, this is my man. And the more that I learned about him, the more, you know, I felt he, he was really a, a person who warranted um, more attention in this context. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really worth stressing is that Ghazi was 16 when the Ottoman conquest occurred. And, you know, I think, I mean, his his father had sort of done everything in his power to prepare Razi for his career, for a successful life in the Mamluk Empire, right? So he took him to Cairo. He introduced him to to you know his his colleagues there. He had him study with with the best you know Egyptian scholars of of the time, and just about you know uh, just as 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 Razi and his father were returning from Cairo, when when Razi was was sixteen. Razi began to take students, he began to issue fatwas, he began to compose poetry, right? So he was just starting out on his career. And then, you know the 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 conquest occurred. And it's worth stressing just how distressing <laughs> to say, the least. this must have been uh, for the young Razi. And, and how much flexibility and ingenuity this required to ensure that he could sort of flourish under, under the new order. I mean, the best comparison that I can think of is, is you know, people who were teenagers, let's say, or young adults, when, when the wall fell, right, in the GDR, who suddenly found themselves in a whole new sort of political, social, you know, and, and intellectual, I think also, um, situation. So, you know, this alone, I think, is is fascinating. And, and I wanted to understand, well, how is it that Ghazi, you know, triumphed? How is it that despite, you know, this kind of obstacle that he encountered early on in life, how did he become such a leading intellectual and such an important figure in Damascus and across the Ottoman Empire? And I think, you know, this this really has everything to do with his father who paved the way for him, um, and and with Ghazi himself. And you know it has everything to do with the salon i mean that's that's really one of one of the arguments of the book that the salon is is a sort of key space precisely because it's informal because there's no sort of agenda because it's an informal space it meant that you know in in the first decades after the conquest arabic speakers and turkish speakers were able to come together and to sort of slowly start to get to know each other and to build relationships and to build trust in one another. And that is what Radia din you know, Ghazi's father, does in, immediately after the conquest. He sort of invites everybody, you know, who passes through, all of the Ottomans who pass through Damascus, he invites them into his home, and he, he begins to build up um, good relationships with him. He, he drafts poetry for them, right? And what's interesting, when he dies in 1529, Razi finds himself out of a job. So what does he do? He he goes to, to the Ottoman capital, like generations of Arab scholars would do after him. He goes to the Ottoman capital in hopes of, of sort of, you know, um, um, getting an appointment. And what does he do when he gets there? Well, he meets with all of the men that his father had already started to establish relationships with. In, in some cases, decades earlier. And what's really interesting is these people remember him. You know, they, they, they remember him, and, and they, in part, they feel an obligation towards him. And so what Ghazi does, and, and this is what he describes in, in the travel account, you know, he, he basically meets one after the other, he meets all of the, all of the members of the Imperial Divan who, who eventually, you know, make the, the decision about, about appointments, right? So he meets the Kadioskar of Rumeli, of Anatolia, he meets um, various different uh, uh, viziers and the work he does in those meetings, right, he, you know, in, in this period, you, you don't go to an unemployment office and fill out a form and, and hope someone, you know, looks at your CV and calls you back, right? So, so what does he do in these meetings? He's he's sort of, you know, he's discussing literature, he's, he's making poetic quips, he's, you know, interpreting the, the Quran. And in so doing, I think, in part, he's showing that he is a serious intellectual, but he's also um, allowing these men to get to know him. And I think to, to, to feel that, yes, this is somebody who is deserving of a position and this is somebody who, who we can sort of support so, so that's that's you know that's the sort of story that that Ghazi I think allows allows me to tell, and that reflects the experience of, of many many other Arabs um, who didn't unfortunately leave behind travel accounts, um, who I think engage in a, in a in a similar sort of of practice. But but the third I think as as I saw it the third question that that you posed was this question of sort of the long arc of the book and the, the sort of the the narrative that I that I sort of develop over the course of the book and and the changes that Razi himself saw. You know, I think when when we think of the role of Arabs in the Ottoman Empire, for the most part I think it's it's easy to read the secondary literature and to come out with the the idea or the sense that Arabs really only begin to play a sort of central role in the political and the cultural and the social life of the Ottoman Empire in the late 17th century and the 18th century, when, you know, famously, um, the Ottoman center begins to weaken and um, leaving room for, let's say, leaving more room for local autonomy um, and participation on the part of, of, you know, uh, many different provinces, but especially uh, the Arab provinces, and so you know I think my book tries in some ways to to revisit that or or to to just actually look seriously at this this early period, which I think is often skipped over, right? Because. The histories of the 17th and 18th century often push forward to sort of, you know, narratives of nationalism and sort of, right, the Nahda and all of these these sorts of things. And so I think that early period has received less attention than than it really should. And so what I what I try to to stress, or or I think what what Razi and you know his contemporaries helped me to see, is that actually in the early 16th century, you know. Arab elites, especially learned Arabs, had an immense amount of of respect and a sort of authority and and maybe a sort of soft power, right, a sort of cultural cachet that uh, allowed them, that gave them visibility in the Ottoman Empire and that I think uh, helped them to actually Participate both in in some ways, I think, in 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 the governance of the empire, but also to sort of shape the empire's you know social, cultural, and and intellectual life. And so I think Razi himself really, you know, helps helps to make this this fact visible. One of the things that that really surprised me, um, when I did this research, was to find that actually many Ottoman chief judges who travel to um, to Damascus end up actually taking their time to study with Ghazi. So these are men who are at the pinnacle of their careers. They are men who have taught themselves at a variety of, you know, as the best madrasas in Istanbul. And nonetheless, when they come to Damascus, they study, you know, Quranic recitation, Quranic exegesis. Many of them hear hadith from him. So, so you know, I think, I think this... This sort of surprise that I felt in in discovering this led me to see, you know, the ways in which, because of the sort of cultural cachet, because of the the sort of importance of late Mamluk scholarship um, across, you know, for for Islamic scholarship, let's say writ large, because of of its the respect that Arab scholars had in this in the late fifteenth century and the early sixteenth century, you know, this didn't evaporate. I um, immediately on uh, at the conquest and and Ottoman scholars certainly were were, you know, I think, hugely were were productive and and valuable members of the the sort of let's say international uh, Islamic intellectual community, but they didn't have the same sort of the the scholarship they produced didn't have the same sort of currency and visibility across the Islamic world that many late Mamluk uh, scholars did. And so that, I think uh, uh, offers a sort of opening for Arabs, for learned Arabs to, to, to gain an, an immense amount of respect from uh, the Ottoman scholars. So yeah, so I think so so you know I think Razi helps to to show, you know this this kind of respect that, that Arab scholars enjoyed. At the beginning of the 16th century,
0: if I remember correctly, one of your arguments in the book is part of this soft power, this soft influence that the the Arab and Mamluk scholars of the early 16th century experienced had to do with, you know, their obvious uh, skills in Arabic yeah. more than than the Ottomans, right? The the reverence for the Arabic language had a yeah. real cultural cachet, and that that was an important aspect, and why, you know, the first Rumi's to come to Damascus maybe weren't as skilled in Arabic and couldn't show off as well in these uh, salons.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly right, and 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 actually, you know, the the sort of status of Arabic as a language, you know, really has the power to shape these relations in, in in actually a pretty surprising way, right? So I think from a contemporary perspective, we we might say, well, you know, why didn't the Ottomans who traveled to Damascus simply go there and insist? That salons be held in Ottoman Turkish only, yeah, right? That's that's question. what we would expect, right? The British in India, you know, and 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 we can think of many other sort of um, other cases in in which we have this this kind of pattern. And I think that does have to do with the status of Arabic. That of course Arabic is the language of of. Well, it's the, you know, it's the language of the Quran and and religion, but it's also the language of of scholarship, right? And so, you know, these, these Ottoman intellectuals and scholars who travel to Damascus, they cannot... Just ignore uh, Arabic. They cannot say, well, ah, bah, Arabic, you know, I, I know Ottoman Turkish and Persian, you know, and I can, I can recite a bunch of poetry and, and you know, write higher level arguments in, in those languages. That doesn't work because, because that, you know, making that kind of argument would, I think, open up a sort of um, open them up to the accusation that they weren't, you know, proper Muslims, that they weren't proper ulema uh, right. Um, men of, of Islamic learning. And so and so that fact, that cultural cachet that, that you've mentioned that Arabic has, you know, really does yeah, affect the relationship between between these these two groups. But yeah, so so maybe I'll say something about about how how the story ends. So so you know, I guess sort of spoiler alert here. Um, um, I can I can maybe give away that that the the book doesn't really end on a high note. Um, at, at least as, as far as as sort of Arab scholars are are concerned. So you know, while in this sort of early period, I think the the sort of yeah the the cultural cachet that that um, that Arabic had and that. Um, Arab scholars uh, enjoyed gave them quite a bit of power the vulnerability of the new Ottoman regime in um, the new provinces the need for local knowledge and local expertise gave um, you know uh, Arab elites uh, quite a bit of power in, in this early period but by the end of the 16th century or by the last quarter of the 16th century, this really begins to change. And that's because, you know, everything is changing um, towards the end of the 16th century. Of course, we have a sort of economic downturn, right? And with the economic downturn, we suddenly have a sort of glut of qualified personnel for the positions available in the Ottoman Empire. And this means that slowly more and more groups are sort of are sort of fighting over. A smaller and smaller, you know, pie, right? For a portion of a, a smaller and smaller pie, and you know, famously, of course, you know, Turkish speakers, Rumi's from from the provinces are are cut out of, of of a lot of um, these these positions, right? And that's why we have some of these these sort of disturbances and, and unrest in Anatolia, among other reasons, uh, but Arabs too. Become, I think, more and more marginalized from um, a lot of the positions that they used to be able to occupy, um, even in 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 the provinces. So so there's a sort of there's a sort of economic um, and and you know I think um, administrative story that that changes things, but but there's also a sort of intellectual and cultural story that that I think is is I probably spend even more time talking about. Which is that, in some ways, you could say that that scholars like Razi were sort of victims of their own success. So, so people like Razi had, of course, you know, taught uh, generations of, of Ottoman scholars. They had introduced them to new literary um, forms, to um, you know, new um, new ideas, and. You know, and as a result, transforming Ottoman scholarship to a great degree. So Ottoman scholarship, which I think in the 15th century probably looked to Persia more than it looked to the Arab lands, um, becomes more and more suffused with the sort of Arabophone tradition. So, you know, what happens by the end of the 16th century is that this, this sort of Arabic language inheritance has been so fully incorporated into the Ottoman intellectual tradition that there's no longer really a need for Arab scholars, you know, to sort of bring that kind of expertise, because it's really been, it's been fully incorporated into the Ottoman uh, tradition. Ghazi himself, I think, died in, in, in happy old age, blissfully ignorant of of these kinds of of developments. but I use his one of his students, al Hamawi, and his travel account to Istanbul in 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 the 1580s, uh, to to sort of build a comparison and and to contrast his experience with that of of Razis. So while Razi, you know, sort of, saunters into, into all of these these gatherings and sort of wows people in, in the 1530s and, you know, is able to really meet with the leading officials of the imperial center. Hamawi has, has incredible difficulty penetrating Ottoman salons. And, you know, you, you can't really make an, an argument out of silence, but the fact that he does not mention uh, Hamawi does not mention salons or the salons of 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 the Istanbul elite in his later account, I think is is hugely significant. And I should say that that he he wrote another travel account to Cairo where he really does focus on on precisely these kinds of, of salons. So the fact that they're missing from his Istanbul account, I think is 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 really significant and suggests that that by the 1580s, Learned Arabs had had much more difficulty penetrating Ottoman salons, and um, and achieving uh, visibility within them than than Razi did in in the earlier period.
0: Well, thank you so much, Helen, for joining us. It was a real pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for for inviting
1: me. And it was really nice to to talk and to to meet you, uh, Miriam.
0: And for our listeners, as always, you can find full details, bibliography and images about Helen Pfeiffer's new book, Empire of Salons, on our website at www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Until next time.